Good morning. It's good to have all of us under the same roof again. It's been a while. Many of you are aware that I I maintain a website uh, called EducateTruth.com, and it's uh, kind of become the hub of news relating to the controversy over the way La Sierra University teaches the theory of evolution. Our goal was to keep the issue public so that it wouldn't blow over, and to allow students and potential parents to be informed so they could make intelligent decisions about where to send their kids but also to create awareness in hopes that our leadership would look into this problem and begin a problem, uh, begin a process that would address the concerns of the LSU students and uh, parents. Well, just recently, La Sierra just lost its anticipated AAA accreditation, and it is now on a one-year probation. But I'm not here to talk about the LSU biology professors proselytizing their views on evolution. I think what's happening at Loss here is systemic of a much bigger issue in our church in the North American division, and that is identity crisis. The Seventh-day Adventist church in some segments has lost its vision, it's lost its identity, and that's why we are seeing problems like this. I mean, would you ever have imagined that the theory of evolution would be taught in our colleges and universities as fact. Well, it is. Among other things, we have lost our vision. Will you bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I want to ask your Holy Spirit to be with me, to speak through the words that I have, that your Spirit will convict our hearts of the truth that you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. What is a Seventh-day Adventist? Are we just another Protestant Christian church placed on this earth to help proclaim the gospel? What do you say when people ask you, what is a Seventh-day Adventist? I'm an English teacher, so I have about 150 kids under my tutelage, and uh, they can be quite curious, and often they ask me questions about my faith. say, what religion are you, Mr. Hildy? And I respond, well, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And almost without fail, it's the same response. What's that? Have you experienced that? What's that? Well, what is that? 31 years ago, during the 1980 General Conference session, our church came together and voted to have 27 brief statements made out that represented what we, as the membership, held to as a collection of beliefs that were representative of what we believed based on the Bible. In 2005, a 28th belief was added. I don't know why, but they didn't tack it on as 28. It actually became 11, and then all the succeeding beliefs were bumped up a number. Just some Adventist trivia for you. So anyone becoming a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is asked to state that they support these beliefs. But do these beliefs get at the essence of what Seventh-day Adventism is? 
Can you read these and get at the heart of what our church is all about? I'd like to suggest to you that maybe these fundamental beliefs, as we call them, is more like a fence. It provides a boundary for us. It defines what a Seventh-day Adventist church is as opposed to maybe a Baptist church or a Methodist church or any other church. But does the fence tell us very much about the house that's sitting inside the fence? Do the 28 statements get at what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist? Seventh-day Adventism also has a way of life, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. We prepare for the Sabbath on Friday. We go to church on Sabbath morning. We close the Sabbath with sundown worship. Our dietary choices are somewhat different than the American diet. And we've grown up with a cultural heritage. We're used to a certain lifestyle, a way of being Adventist. Is that what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist? Are we defined by our big franks, by our wham? But is there something more that we're missing? I'm talking about the beginnings of Seventh-day Adventism. When Jesus died for all mankind, was a personal salvation secured for all those who chose to receive it? Could the disciples of Jesus have the assurance that they would be saved because of the cross? Absolutely. Were there any Seventh-day Adventists standing around the cross? No, not really. I I can see where you're coming from. I'm going to respectfully disagree with you. Were there any Seventh-day Adventists um, standing at the cross? I'd say no, because that happened 1,800 years before Adventism even appeared on the scene. Yet forgiveness of sins and the assurance of salvation was offered right then and there to all who believed. So Adventism was not called into existence to offer people the assurance of salvation, was it? That was taken care of long before there was an Adventist. Now when Jesus was inaugurated as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary to intercede for mankind for the next 1,800 years, were there any Adventists around then? No. So it seems that Adventism was not needed for that work either. The work of Jesus in sprinkling our prayers with the incense of his righteousness was initiated long before there was an Adventist. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in nurturing and caring for Christians in a church setting did not need the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, all these things are vital to Christianity and we're to hold them as important for us today, but Adventists have inherited these truths from others. We've even inherited the Sabbath from others. These truths were established without any need of the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist church. So the question then is, why was Adventism needed? Let's look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 4. I think that gives us a big clue as to the reason why. Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. 
Now, the hour of God's judgment began in 1844, and with it began the final atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary and the blotting out of sin. Was this the time around when Seventh-day Adventism appeared? Could it be that the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist church is directly and intimately related to the cleansing of the sanctuary? Is it that reason for its existence? The question is, what does all this mean and what are the issues that are really at stake here if we look at it through those lenses? Let's take a quick view of the great controversy in relationship to our church. Satan's been challenging God's character and his right to rule the universe for a very long time. Satan has said that God's unfitness to rule is proved by his giving a law that cannot be kept. And Satan has had great success in advancing this. He got his chosen people in the Old Testament to think that God was unfair and harsh. And in the great apostasy after the New Testament, Satan convinced Christians that God wants certain rituals and human works to supplement Christ's work at the cross. So just by reading Christian history and the Bible, you might think that Satan is going to win this battle. This, this fear is addressed in Daniel 8.13. Several questions are asked. How long will this go on? How long will God's good name be trodden underfoot? How long will the sanctuary be trampled? Will Satan win after all? The answer comes in verse 14. No, this will not go on forever. In fact, it says, After 2300 days, the sanctuary will be cleansed and there will be an end to the defaming of God's good name. God will be vindicated. Romans 3.4 says it well. That thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. The word justified in this context means acquitted of charges, declared innocent, vindicated. Now, Jesus did vindicate God's law and his character in the most noble demonstration that's ever been seen on earth. Jesus showed that God's law is good and that his character is love. But one nagging question remained unanswered. Can sinful human beings who have been rebelling all their lives really live without rebelling anymore? Maybe Jesus could. But could they? Some have expressed the thought that God's vindication was complete at the cross and that nothing further is necessary to vindicate God and his government. But the evidence is clear that the vindication of God was not completed at the cross and that God is still waiting for a final vindication of his character before the end of sin on this planet. Review and Herald. All heaven is waiting to hear us vindicate God's law. There's still a need to prove that God's law is good and right for sinners. Christ Object Lesson, page 69. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. 
This clearly says that the second coming must wait until Christ's character is seen in his professed people. And the only possible reason for such a hold in God's plans for this earth is that something must yet be demonstrated about Satan's charges and about God's character. Revelation 14.5 describes the last generation who will live on earth before Jesus comes. Listen closely. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without faults before the throne of God. God's made an incredible promise here. You guys realize that? He claims that he will produce a people who will be without deceit or fault of any kind. In Desire of Ages 671, we read, The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. It is not our honor or salvation that is involved here, but God's name and his character. He has promised that he will perfect his people. But can he really do it? If he cannot make us perfect, then his word is a lie and Satan wins the great controversy. It's that simple. Page 148 of Christ's Object Lessons. The honor of his throne is staked for the fulfillment of his word unto us. Whenever God promises something, he puts his name behind the promise. His throne was at stake when Christ came to our earth, and his throne is at stake in what he will do through the last generation. Desire of Ages 763 says, Every character will be fully developed, and all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. Then the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. It's important to note that God is vindicating his own name, but it is also vital to understand that he will do the vindication through the characters of his people. The full development of righteous and wicked characters is necessary for the final demonstration of God's character and law. The end of sin on this planet is clearly dependent on God's vindication as he brings the plan of redemption to completion. You know, it's significant that Ellen White calls this the final atonement. Now, at the cross, the sacrifice was completed, but the atonement was not completed. Right here, we have the difference between Adventism and all other Christian religions. The final atonement is all about when and how God will win the great controversy and how Jesus can come this means that the purpose of Adventism's existence is to prove that Satan is a liar and that God is telling the truth in the great controversy. It's that simple. That is the message and the, uh, the essence of Adventism. The only hope for eternal security from rebellion ever arising again in the universe is when no one will ever consider Satan's accusations anymore because they have been proved false in this arena of demonstration, all happening here on our little planet. Now, of course, this requires the involvement of God's people in this demonstration. Our role is to allow God to come into our lives and to do what he said he could do, cleanse our hearts and make us totally obedient to him. The question is, do you really want to end sin on this planet? 
Are you tired of hearing about child abuse? Are you tired about hearing about all the senseless violence that happens in our society? Are you tired of hearing about the abuse of animals, our environment? Are you tired of hearing about the injustice in our court systems where too often money determines the outcome of the case? There is only one way to end these problems, and that is the second coming of Christ. These abuses cannot be solved by picketing, boycotting, rioting. These methods might alleviate the problem, but they do not solve it. The only way the ugliness of sin can be stopped is by allowing Jesus to come back. And please note that I did not say waiting for Jesus to come back. He's waiting for us. We're not waiting for him. The mission of Adventism is different from the mission of any other Christian group that has ever existed. Adventism mission is different from the mission of the early Christian church. It is different from the mission of the Waldensians. It is different from the mission of Martin Luther. Our mission is completely unique. It has never been given to any other group of people on the face of this earth. And the reason is simply that we are living in the day of atonement when the cleansing of the sanctuary is in process and there are really unique issues that are involved in this day. So when can Christ return? The second coming of Christ is not possible just at any time. How often have you heard, well, Christ could come tomorrow. God is a God of order and he does have his timing. So I don't think we can say Christ could come tomorrow. There's a lot of events that prophecy points to that must happen. So he can't just come at any time because it is dependent on God's victory in the great controversy. In the 1840s, God's, uh, God led out a people, and they had really a marvelous experience at that time. But after the great disappointment, things fell apart. And God's people, they didn't have the courage to move through that experience unitedly. They fragmented and only a few survived through this difficult period. And Jesus wanted very much to return after 1844, but he could not because his people were not united and moving together with him. Jesus put things on hold. Much like a space launch is put on hold in Florida when something's wrong with the equipment. Is something wrong with the equipment today? After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Jesus came again to his people and asked them if they were willing to move forward with him. But once again, God's people balked. Instead of asking, what does God say? They looked to their leaders and said, what do our leaders say? And we've spent a good part of the last century denying that we really delayed Christ's second coming. It's been over 100 years. We've claimed that our forefathers' repentance was genuine and that we've been teaching righteousness by faith ever since. In reality, the denial of the 1888 message is just as real and strong today as it was in the 1890s. And as a result of our failure in the 1890s, Christ had to put his plans on hold again. Now it's been over 160 years. But I believe he's making another appeal to the Seventh-day Adventist church. 
the Seventh-day Adventist movement. He's telling us that he's ready to take us home, and if we're ready to move unitedly with him. Now, the question for us is identical to the question of 1888. What will happen this time? Will we respond in such a way that God can finally carry out his plan, or will we continue to put our selfish interests above the vindication of God in the great controversy? Let's look at a few lessons that we can glean from Israel. Now, when God called Israel to be his chosen people, it was not his purpose to qualify them alone to be worthy of salvation. He wanted Israel to be his witness to the nations of the excellence of his character and of his government. The purpose of Israel's existence was to enlighten the world so that all would welcome Jesus when he came to earth. Now, did Israel succeed or did they fail in their mission? We know that they did not prepare the world for the first coming of Christ. And please notice the approach that Christ took in light of their failure. Have you noticed that Jesus spent very little time in outreach to the Gentiles? Most of Jesus' time and energy was spent on the efforts to restore Israel by bringing them to repentance. They were the people through whom God wanted to enlighten the world, so Jesus spent most of his time doing the most difficult work of all, breaking down the walls of apathy, prejudice, to bring them back into obedience to God. Now, the purpose of Adventism is exactly the same as the task given to Israel. God is not qualifying Adventists alone worthy of salvation. Don't misunderstand me but he wants us to be his witness to the world of the excellence of his character and of his government. Our mission is to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. Now the question must be honestly addressed. Is Adventism succeeding in its mission? Let's look at a few anecdotal pieces of evidence. There are 16.3 million Adventists in the world today. And according to USA Today, Seventh-day Adventism is growing by 2.5% in North North America, a rapid clip for this part of the world where Southern Baptists and mainline denominations as well as other church groups are declining. Sounds like good news. 25 years ago, there was a Gallup poll taken. And uh, there's an editorial written in the Adventist Review. Keep in mind, this was 25 years ago. He writes, Although 70% of respondents say they have heard or read about the church, when asked what they like best about us, 52% can give no answer. Another 21% say nothing in particular. That is fully a 73% of the public can think of no attractive feature about the church. That figure is almost exactly paralleled by the response to the question, What do you like least about Adventists? Again, 51% gave no answer, and another 20% say they don't dislike anything in particular. The church's failure to project a sharp image concerns me, writes the author. I'm troubled that we are hiding our light under a bushel. Now, that was a long time ago, 25 years. Surely things have changed. We have quite a 
few million more members that have come into the church, so you know maybe we've taken our light out and it's shining a little brighter. Let's look at another public survey from 1995. Well, in that public survey, only 53% had even heard of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In addition, there was a marked increase in the number who misidentify us with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had that happen. But still, that was only 16 years ago. So we jumped up about 10 years, but still, 16 years ago, maybe things have changed. Let's listen to an article from the Adventist News Network from 2010 during the general conference session. Just be reading a few clips from that. Thousands of Seventh-day Adventist church officials, delegates, and staff are gathering in Atlanta this week for the Global Protestant Denomination's 59th World Session, filling the Georgia Dome and flooding local hotels. But do locals even know who they are? An informal survey indicates many Atlanta residents view the Adventists inundating their city as just another batch of sneakered, badge-wearing conference attendees. Oh, you all with that group over at the Dome for that convention? Asked Claude Calloway. Most respondents stumbled over the church's name. Seven-day Adventists was a common misnomer, as was 70 Adventists. Not exactly indicative of this 60 million member church. When asked if he had heard who Seventh-day Adventists are, one passerby said, Who? Seventh-day Evangelists? Only two respondents said they knew or used to know a member of the church. My wife used to work with an Adventist, said Jim Slamenta. I used to drive by an Adventist church, or maybe it was the church's headquarters, over on Memorial Drive. To me... It's just another church, he said. Now, we must ask this question again. Are we succeeding or failing in our mission to prepare people for the second coming of Christ? The truth which is very difficult for us to face is that we are in jeopardy once again of failing just like the Jews failed 2,000 years ago. Inspiration spells out God's plan for the church in Desire of Ages 680. Christ designs that heaven's order, heaven's plan of government, heaven's divine harmony shall be represented in his church on earth. Thus, in his people, he is glorified. Notice that God is glorified when his church reveals heaven's plan of government to the world. Now, is heaven's plan of government currently being seen in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Do human plans too often dominate over God's expressed will for this church? God's people have a great work to do. The world must see in the church of God true order, true discipline, true organization. This is when we will fulfill our mission and allow Jesus to return to this world. Through the church eventually will be made manifest the final and full display of the love of God to the world that is to be lightened with its glory. Notice that God's love will be seen through the church. It will not come through angels or the rocks, but through God's people. 
Thus, the success of God's church in representing his character is very important to finishing the great controversy. And since our church is currently not succeeding in its mission to prepare the world for Jesus' return, what are we supposed to do? Well, one approach that many are adopting today is to ignore the problems in the Adventist church and to go out to the world to do outreach work. This approach is attractive because Jesus did call us to go out and spread the gospel, didn't he? And many are responsive to the gospel message, despite the church being hesitant and resistant to any major reforms from within. Further, if we just forget about the disobedience within the church and concentrate on soul winning, we will receive a lot of praise from the church for doing a good work. And in addition, isn't it personally fulfilling to engage in Bible studies and lead people to readiness for baptism? But is this the approach that Christ used when he came to his failing chosen people? For three and a half years, Jesus spent his time trying to restore his church that was in danger of self-destruction. He spent almost no time in outreach to the Gentile world. In spite of the fact that many Gentile souls were in need of the gospel, Jesus' first priority was trying to restore his people so that they could give the message to the Gentiles. A past conference president, Henry Bosch, said, Evangelization of the world by means of extensive preaching, teaching, and printed propaganda, and the expenditure of large sums of money for the campaigns, buildings, equipment, travel, etc., vital though all these are, do not in and of themselves fulfill the principal commission entrusted to the remnant church. These are not the melody. At the most, they are the accompaniment. The melody which is to ring forth sketchily at first, but every, sorry, but every more clearly, is the song of victory over sin, the song of Moses and the Lamb, soaring higher and higher, closer and ever closer to the heavenly pattern, further and further away from the world, to the climatic height of a full and final display of his grace in vessels of clay, but divested of all earthliness and testified unto by the declaration of the angel, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Revelation 14.12 For the first time, this testimony will be said of a whole community of saints. Listen to what a leader in the church said regarding what constitutes success and failure in the Seventh-day Adventist church. You might recognize these words. Let Laodicea be warned. At one time, David fell victim to the magic influence of numbers. That Satan-inspired sport which so slyly leads to pride and self-complacency, which substitutes quantity for quality, mediocrity for true merit, and pomp for paucity. The charm exerted by numbers, size, and quantity, if allowed to prevail, will fill Laodicea's pews with illegitimate children and swell her ranks with a mixed multitude which, as of old, could bring her march to a standstill at another Kadesh Barnea. God forbid that something like this should happen. Let Laodicea ponder her way 
let her pause and take inventory. Let her consider and define where she has strayed from the pattern in her multiple activities, ministerial, educational, medical, social, etc. Let her frankly confess her shortcomings, plead for forgiveness, and then chart her future course in harmony with the divine counsel. Let her shun the subtle art of rationalizing, which makes evil appear good and transgression a necessity. Trying to update what is eternally fresh and young, ever the head and never the tail. Unless Laodicea will submit to a candid self-examination and to an uncompromising self-discipline, there will descend upon her a tempest that will sift and shake her ranks and sweep to one side the whole of her household and with its elaborate furnishings and costly equipment, clearing the stage for the Lord himself to take hold of the reins with an army of unidentified ones whose names and pictures may not be found in any register or church paper or book, nor diffused from any desk or platform. Testimonies to Ministers, page 300. It appears our priorities are out of order. See, the primary mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the vindication of God. And it will be accomplished through the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. But before the sanctuary in heaven can be cleansed from all the records of sin, the sanctuary of our hearts must be cleansed from the pollution which continues to dishonor God's name. Adventism is all about God's victory in the great controversy as he finishes his 6,000-year struggle, which... Uh, sorry, his struggle against the lies of Satan. The secondary mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is world mission and outreach through Bible studies and soul winning. When the primary mission is understood and addressed, the secondary mission will find abundant success. If we try to reverse these priorities as we have been doing for so many years, we will continue to fail. Outreach alone is not the solution to our sickness. We've been putting the cart before the horse and it simply hasn't worked. If outreach is to be successful, it must flow out from a consecrated and obedient heart. Remember that Christ's efforts while on earth were to restore his people to obedience from the heart. Likewise, our outreach must flow from total obedience and total love with no more rationalizing so that we can do what our selfish hearts desire. We must abandon cultural values to determine what is right and wrong. Most of the problems in the Adventist church today are the result of placing cultural values above a thus saith the Lord. Will we decide once and for all to obey God or will we continue to try to force him to do it our way? The way we answer this question will determine the success or failure of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Ezekiel's appeal to Israel. In conclusion, I want to examine this in relationship to our church to today. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 7. Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 7. Ezekiel lived in a time of apostasy. 
and backsliding in the church at that time. And God gave him a special message to give to Israel. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 7. This is what he says. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. In verse 11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? This is not just God's appeal to his rebellious chosen people in Ezekiel's time. His appeal is to his rebellious chosen people today. God is saying, please turn back before it is ever too late Why are you insisting on dying, O house of Adventism? Can we really be faithful Adventists and ignore this question? Part of our responsibility as church members is to help heal our church so that it can fulfill both its primary and secondary mission. Sometimes the surgeon's knife is painful and the healing process is difficult. But our gracious God is the master physician, isn't he? Right now, there are some carefully laid plans by which Satan is trying to subvert this process of healing. One trap is a compromised gospel. A gospel which says that since Jesus did everything that was necessary, all we need to do is believe and the rest is taken care of. Then we have the absolute assurance of salvation. This gospel has been coming into Adventism for quite some time, but more so in the last ten years. It's a gospel which gives false assurance of salvation because it promises that we can be saved while still sinning. It teaches that we can ignore our little sins, our besetting sins, because Jesus loves us unconditionally. As long as we continue to believe in Him as our Savior, we continue to be a saving We continue to be in a saving relationship with him, regardless of our continued sinning. This trap may cause the loss of more sincere Adventists than any of Satan's traps. Another trap laid by Satan is the trap of humanism and cultural priorities. Here we determine what is right and wrong by the best human thinking available. We take surveys and determine what should be done based on these surveys. We ask for the best scholarly research and the best logic, while we set aside inspired counsel as outdated and in need of cultural reinterpretation. Another trap is having a critical spirit. Some see clearly the problems in the church and spend their entire time exposing and delineating the sins of the church. Satan leads these individuals to become negative about everything they see. Then there's the most subtle of all Satan's traps, the moderate trap. Well, we all want to be balanced, right? We don't want to be extreme. Why be over here, here, when we could be in the middle? We realize that there are some problems in the church, but we hear about all the souls being one, and we conclude that things must probably be headed in the right direction. With all our progress and growth, things can't be too bad, can they? The 
problems must be someone else's problems so we can safely ignore them. Even though our schools and hospitals have been having difficulties, we'll just keep our mouths shut. It's safer that way. When strange music and worship styles come into our churches, we'll make the best of it. Yes, it's very easy, very easy, very tempting to stay out of the fire so that we will not get burned. But is this, the sil- but is this silence and harmony with Ezekiel's appeal? Are we faithful watchmen if we remain silent while the enemy climbs in over the walls? Or will we do what we can to save and heal our church? We cannot have a unique Adventist witness if we don't have a unique Adventist message. The gospel of Adventism is different from the gospel of contemporary Christianity. Will we let the gospel die? Our understanding of the great controversy between Christ and Satan is totally unique. Will we let it die by our silence? Our understanding of the relationship between law and grace is unique. Even our understanding of health reform is unique. Because we do not live healthfully to avoid disease or to live longer, but to allow God to fully sanctify our soul. We need to uphold the highest lifestyle standards so that God has a chance to win the battle for our minds. We have a unique understanding of a modern-day prophet in which God speaks with just as much authority as he did in Paul's day. Are we willing to be Seventh-day Adventists today? Are we willing to prepare the way for the final vindication of his character? Are we willing to live in the house behind the fence? The price is high, but the reward is beyond anything that we can imagine. Jeremiah 12:5 If thou hast run with the footmen and they have wearied thee then how canst thou contend with horses and if in the land of peace wherein thou trusted they wearied thee then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan Today we're in the land of peace and we are running with the footmen Ahead of us are the horses in the swelling Jordan this is our preparation time. The time to strengthen our characters. If the church militant is ever going to be the church triumphant, then we must get serious about the name Seventh-day Adventist. We must know who we are and why we exist. We must get our primary mission and our secondary mission straight so that our efforts can be blessed by God. Let us pray together that the hard ground of our hearts may be broken up so that the refreshing early rain may lead to the powerful latter rain. And above all, let us pray that this generation of Seventh-day Adventists will be the last generation to live on a sin-cursed earth. Let us stand and turn to Trust and Obey, page 590.
Father, you've given us a mission. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit will convict us of what that is and that we will throw everything that we have at your feet to fully trust and obey you and follow wherever you may lead. Only then will we have what is necessary to take the gospel to the whole world and then your soon return will come upon us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.